So getting very, very, very good at your site analysis and identifying all the issues and challenges and problems to be solved. And then getting very, very good at understanding the sales process at the tail end and the demographic of who's actually going to be buying the product to make sure you are supplying the right product for the market. If you get those two right, then the middle is follow the bouncy ball. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello and welcome to episode 64 of the show. Thanks for joining me. Great show coming up today. Speak with a developer whose story I think you'll love. We'll get to that shortly. On the project front, I've been battling away, as usual, On one project, I'm just in the process of getting contracts signed with the builder so that we can get going on the construction side of things. I'm looking to demolish the existing houses in a month or so and get started on SiteWorks. It'll be exciting when the demolition happens as that is always a good point in a project when things start to feel real. On my other project, we're working on the construction documentation and I'm thinking about ways of getting some early pre-sales before we hit the open market. So there's plenty going on. I've been getting lots of inquiries about the mentoring program, so obviously plenty of people have decided this is the year they are going to get started on becoming a property developer. If you'd like to find out more about how to develop safely and profitably, then email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com, and I can send you some information. Okay, on to today's guest. Rob Flux has enjoyed two parts to his property journey. His first part was as a property investor, buying and holding properties. Then he pretty much lost it all and had to start again. In part two of his career, he used development as a way to quickly regain his lost wealth. Not only has Rob completed a number of development projects along the way, but he has grown one of Australia's largest networks of people interested in property development. In this conversation, we talk about the importance of mindset and tackling problems, return versus risk and time, and how he runs his business to ensure regular deal flow and project completions. Keep an ear out for Rob's view on profit sharing. I think you will enjoy this discussion, and I started off by asking Rob the usual question about what food he would eat until he was sick. Oh, (laughs) um, uh, I wasn't prepared for that one. Uh, It would definitely be some form of curry. Uh, I'm quite partial to spicy things. I love a very good vindaloo. Um... So, yeah, I'll, I'll say Vindaloo. Ooh, you're the first person to say Vindaloo on the, on the show. What, what, what is it about a, a hot, spicy meal and particularly a Vindaloo that you enjoy? Uh, it gets the adrenaline pumping whether you realise it or not. Uh, it just, just makes you feel alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly uh, makes your mouth feel alive. For a, a good 24 hours because you remember it tomorrow as well. So. <laughs> well, I hope you take precautions and put the toilet paper in the freezer before you start eating one. Thank you, mate. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Rob. Well, we're here today to talk about developing as usual and you're an active developer. You've also got a, a property developing network that you've pulled together in a community, but can you give us a bit of a background on yourself, how you got into property and how you got into developing? Sure. Uh, I've been in the property game for a little bit over 32 years. Um, I started out with buying my first house at the age of 18 and my first investment property at the age of 21 after reading a book by a lady by the name of Jan Summers. 
Uh, Jan was one of the first educators in that property space back in the day, and she taught very much uh, buy and hold negative gearing, and of course, that's what I did. So I did 20 odd years of, of that, uh, I guess before, uh, I guess, finding wiser ways of making money. Um, but the negative gearing side of things worked really well. I owned my first house outright at the age of 24 and was well and truly on my way to uh, financial freedom and mathematically would have made it at the age of 38 and got divorced at 37. So uh, I guess a, a good opportunity to reassess my life uh, and reassess uh, whilst I loved property, um, I didn't want to wait 20 years to do it again the second time round. And so embarked on uh, how do I actually fast track it and add value to the cycle rather than waiting for the market to do the heavy lifting for me. That's kind of how I got into the development side of things. Uh, in doing that, I pretty much paid for every education course that I could come across and multiple mentors and multiple uh, coaches along the way and paid anywhere from 25 to 40 odd K for some of their programs. And I found that they were all pretty much lacking uh, in two things, and one of them was uh, the low-level nitty-gritty detail, uh, and one of them was the mentoring support that you got was very generic. And so I got a few mates sitting around my kitchen table. Um, we all figured none of us knew everything, but collectively we knew a few things, uh, and we started helping each other's projects out. And as one mate invited another mate, and they invited another, kind of outgrew the, the lounge, um, and then all of a sudden I found I was running a public networking group and that was, uh, coming up to eight years now. So we we're over seven and a half years, but not quite eight. Uh, we now are the largest networking group of its kind in Australia have just under 8,000 people in our community and we run monthly events in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, and it's kind of, uh, gotten a little bit out of hand. And what I like to think of a, uh, a drinking club with a property problem. <laughs> uh, what do you think drew you into property initially? Um, it was one of those things where uh, I came from quite humble beginnings. Mum and dad were not very well off. I grew up in Darwin um, and anyone who knows anything about Darwin, Cyclone Tracy took the town out uh, in Christmas of 1974 and my parents were part of that process. We had an eight-month-old house that was not insured. Mum and dad had put everything into that and it got blown away by the cyclone. And so uh, they had to start again from very, very humble beginnings. And I saw the sacrifices they made for me and that dad was doing shift work, wasn't able to see me, and, and spend much time with me. Mum would do all the the running around that she could, but they just didn't have a lot of money, and uh, I didn't want, I guess, my kids to go through that sort of suffering um, later on in life. And so I set about being. Uh, I didn't. I didn't want to be the same. So I set about trying to be very, very entrepreneurial. Um, I started out being entrepreneurial in non-property related things at the age of fourteen. I used to deliver junk mail into into letterboxes and at the age of 15 i had the opportunity to to manage the entire um distribution network and so i took that on and then started outsourcing other people doing the work um so you know took that on very quick um did things like pushing trolleys and i found that working hard was not 
the better, not best. There's only an hour you can put in, and you get an hour's pay. So I figured there'd be a, must be a better way, and that's where I started reading and came across Jan, and yeah, the rest is history. And so we might, I might break your career, your property career, up into two halves. Your your, your first Absolutely. half and your second half. So with the first half, when you were investing in property, were you doing any value adding or renovating, or were you just acquiring properties and holding them? So was definitely value adding from time to time. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that that was my primary objective, but what I learnt. Uh, in holding a few of those properties that inherently, you know, why is this not renting? And, you know, there, there must be a reason or the rental return should be better than this. And so you, I kind of came across the value adding through serendipity uh, rather than it becoming a deliberate strategy. Uh, and it was then, okay, adding value is worthwhile. So now I look for opportunities to add value and it's kind of grew organically rather than being, a, I guess, a deliberate approach. And that's why when I started the second half of the career, I saw the value adding part of it and thought, well, that's clearly the better way. And rather than buying someone else's finished product and paying retail price, I wanted to be the one creating the stock and creating it at wholesale price. And so were you doing the renovations yourself back at that that point? No, I have very soft IT hands, mate. I'm... <laughs> Uh, I, I spent 20 odd years in IT and before that I used to fix TVs and videos uh, as a day job uh, and so it's one of those things where these hands don't have not done a hell of a lot of hard labour. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find that the, the most practical tool uh, that I own uh, and I've got a lot of tools in my shed but the most practical tool I own yeah, is this device here, a mobile phone and uh, with that you can call a lot of people and get a lot of stuff done. Yes, the modern day mobile is a pretty amazing tool. I don't think any of us could do without it now, particularly as a developer. And and how many properties would, did you acquire or have in your po- portfolio in the first half? Well, I'm going to... Uh, this is a, a little bit of a trick question, Justin, because it's not how many you acquire, it's how good they are. Um, uh, and by way of example... Uh, I'll put it back to you that I own three properties that uh, generate collectively about $210,000 in in rental income. So, uh, you know, comparing collective properties is not not the measure. It's it's how much passive income that actually generates. Uh, And so I had less properties, but they were doing very, very well. Um, And I similarly keep that approach today. It's really about how do I... How do I get the, the right kind of properties in the right places generating the right returns? I was curious more from the the point of view of you know, had you accumulated six or seven or eight or whatever number of properties? Uh, it, it would have been in the in the vicinity of eight or so. Um, I'd have to do the actual count, whether it's seven, whether it's eight. Um, but yeah, um, I'm, at, I'm at 15 at the moment. But um, of the 15, there's only, uh, there's only probably four or five that I really care about. They're, they're the ones that uh, are driving the machine, if that makes sense. Everything else is, uh, I guess, a means to an end. Yeah, and that's where I was heading with, with the question. It's, uh, did you, are you finding in your 
second half of your career that you're able to generate or create properties that you may have less of them, but that they're more valuable than the seven or eight that you accumulated in the first half when you're just sort of buying and holding and yeah. creating a little bit of additional value. Absolutely. And then, and I think where I've got, a, I guess, a, a fairly unique approach to things is by having that investing brain uh, and also having the developing brain, I'm looking at properties both from a how do I manufacture the profit day one, but once I've manufactured the profit, whether or not that's an investment that I actually want to keep long term, uh, because if I cash it in, then I have to pay tax today. If I keep it, then the market's going to do further heavy lifting for me. But I've, you know, I've effectively kept the profits of my deal. Uh, and so the ultimate outcome for any developer is to uh, keep the profits of their deal, um, have that owned outright uh, and doubling in uh, every seven to 10 years as the market does and having passive income that then about allows that to then uh, be extra serviceability for the next deal that you're going into. So you can just start ramping up the size of your deals. Well, let's get to the developing part. So part B, talk us through how you got started, what the first project or the projects that you that you got involved with were. First project I took on was actually two adjacent properties that were side by side that were originally configured as rent per room student accommodation. I could see the opportunity in those just from an investment point of view with the rent that they were actually generating. But the reason why I purchased them was actually the development potential because they were actually sitting on a very large uh, parcel of land that was uh, zoned for townhouses. And so I could see that I could hold them at a fairly neutral cost whilst I was actually learning the development cycle and uh, added six townhouses to the back of those, which I further configured the majority of them to also be rooming accommodation. So uh, from a rental perspective, um, those generate quite a large amount of uh, return. Um, and uh, I guess having sold down some of the townhouses at the back, the residual stock that I own, uh, it generates a quite a healthy return. And, and pretty much with one project, Big Bang was able to get out both from an equity perspective and also from a cash flow perspective. Um, and so I was very fortunate in going all in first go. Uh, that's not the best way for everybody to get out. And I'm going to suggest that for most people, that would be a very scary way to go out. Um, instead, they want to you know, start small, build their, build their nest egg, build their confidence. Um, I just put a very good team around me and I used a lot of the skills that I had in that prior investing world where I had added a little bit of value into the process um, with a with a couple of mentors sitting over the top of me just to make sure that I did things right. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I got out the first go. And so you were being you were going through a program or something at the time when you started that first project? I was actually going through a couple of programs. Um, I've done multiple programs without naming, I guess, the individuals. I'm sure that each of them will take credit for my success. Um, uh, I'll leave that uh, up to them to do that. But the reality is, no matter what program anybody does, uh, and I run programs myself, the the success is not due to the program. The success is due to the individual in the program who actually takes the action. Uh, and so I, I take full responsibility for all of my actions. And uh, as all students in all programs should do, uh, because whatever you are taught, it's only whether or not you actually action it that actually makes the difference. 
Yeah, we might come back to the the teaching side of things because I've got quite a few questions and I get a lot of inquiries from people that are interested in learning how to develop. So we might come back to that. But in, ter- in, in terms of the, the first project, what were the things that you learned or what were the major differences that you found in terms of being an active developer versus your, your previous experience with just with being an investor? Yeah, uh, there are probably multiple stages with multiple learnings I got of that. And the by far the biggest thing I got was mindset growth. The From acquiring the site day one, I had challenges with finance. And the reason why I had challenges was that from a pure technicality point of view, these things were houses. But from a from a bank point of view, because it was rent per room, they wanted to deem it as commercial. If I valued it as a house, then I have, would have less uh, deposit required with, because of a lower LVR, but they wouldn't recognize all of the rent. And so from a, uh, I guess, a, from an equity point of view, I qualified, but from a serviceability point of view, I didn't. So then we spin it around and say, okay, if we look at these commercially, then, you know, we need a much larger deposit. So they wanted a 30% deposit, um, but they would recognize the rent. So in this instance, I qualified from a serviceability point of view, but I didn't have enough equity because I'd just gone through a divorce and given a lot of my money away. And it was one of those things where, you know, if you if you poke your tongue out to the left, um, you don't qualify. And if you poke your tongue out to the right, you don't qualify. But um, But you can see that there's a million dollars worth of profit in this and a bucket load of cash flow. And it's, so the question is, how do I? Um, and I'd learned very, very early on that my lack of resources was not gonna stop me from being resourceful to actually get this across the line because the money was sitting there and it was just had to be unlocked and I had to work out how. And that was probably the biggest growth set that I went through is, well, I need to get somebody involved in in helping me across the line. and. Uh, it took quite a bit of time in trying to, to convince people to come on board to, to help me out from that equity point of view um, until I swallowed my pride and asked a family member in my sister to say, hey, do you want to come into the deal? Um, and that was that was the epiphany to me to go, it doesn't matter if I don't have all the money myself personally. What matters is that I guess through... Uh, a team of people, I can actually acquire what I need to, uh, because fifty percent of something is better than one hundred percent of nothing. And how had you acquired that site? Were you under a due diligence clause, or were you just looking at it, knowing that it would work, and scrambling to try and take control of it? Yeah, it was under a due diligence clause um, that that we got it. So I had twenty one days of of due diligence from that perspective. Um, and I think it was a 45-day settlement. Uh, it was very clear that the money was there. Uh, it was just, how do I make that happen? So, Okay, and then moving on from there, what other projects or how, how did you progress after that? Uh, I've done, I guess, a, a myriad of things. And in the early days, I didn't really have any strategies in mind. Uh, and it was just kind of looking everywhere at everything. So I've done units and I've done townhouses, I've done splitters, I've done subdivisions, I've done options contracts. And it was a little bit of jack of all trades and master of none 
And I found that I was not getting the traction that I wanted as fast as I wanted in going through that process. Um, and the irony was that as I was doing that, the, 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 the things that I was seeing in my network were people doing exactly the same. And so I decided to try and narrow down my focus to a, uh, a very simple strategy that allowed me to, to just do a cookie cutter, rinse and repeat type uh, project that uh, I can almost do blindfolded at the moment. So small scale land subdivisions is, is my, uh, I guess, chosen strategy of choice. Um, I can do that with very minimal input. Um, my projects typically take around nine months from acquiring the site through to payday. And, you know, I can run multiple projects at a time, which allows me to, to fly around the country and do the things that I do. And, uh, you know, it, if you smooth it out over time, every three to four months, there's a payday coming in. So, um, whereas if I did townhouse projects, uh, many of the projects take two, two and a half years to, to a payday. So I just get a, a regular paycheck and I find that nice and easy to do. Well, two, two and a half years, that seems quick at the moment. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> uh, when when well, you say... I think, that, I think that's very subjective to what part of the country you're in, Justin. So uh, I know that in your neck of the woods, uh, I guess councils in and around Melbourne are notoriously slow. Um, but as you progress around the country, um, you guys would probably want to be one of the slower um, jurisdictions to get your approvals through. Yeah, well, I'm going to avoid uh, bashing the councils because I'll be on a long soapbox rant if we start doing that. But Yeah, when... this isn't bashing council. It, it's, it's the whole combination of, uh, I guess, state and federal... Um, so it's state and local government combination that... Uh, each state has addressed that differently, and I think there are lessons to be learned from all of the states that if we could get utopia, I'd like to get some bits from Victoria and some bits from New South Wales and some bits from Queensland and combine them all together and create a national um, program. That'd be, that'd be awesome. But Yes, keep watching Utopia, Rob. Keep wishing for it. I just think they, <laughs> with Australia's population growing and particularly in Melbourne and Sydney but I'm based in Melbourne so I see it firsthand. We got a lot of people moving in and in order to keep up with the production of housing there needs to be a more streamlined approach to planning and decision making and that isn't happening and you're just having to get more and more reports done and delays in decisions being made and it's just slowing everything down and adds a lot of cost to the finished product which ultimately the purchases pay for i couldn't agree more and i'm going to say that one of the best places with regards to that i think is new south wales where uh state government several years ago took a uh, quite a bold approach to to mandate that all the councils have to uh have common zoning names have to have a common reporting portal uh that sort of thing and they've created uh, complying development codes that are state government driven that that push down. Um, it's early days for that to get 100% full traction, but that's really where I think that uh, nationally we all need to be moving to, so that all of the councils uh, have some consistency in their in their methodologies. Yeah, I agree. That would make sense. But wasn't there a revolt by the councils when that was brought in and it got suspended? 
so there, so there, you're talking about elements of that, and that's for uh, elements of the complying development code. Um, but that's very uh, typical of uh, anybody relinquishing power uh, is they they're afraid of the unknown. Um, and some councils pushed back and some councils embraced it. And the ones that have embraced it uh, are racing ahead and getting uh, much of the growth happening in their area. And I think some of the other councils are looking at that going, hey, maybe we should have done that. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned that you were doing small-scale subdivision. What, can you just elaborate on what that means? What does it look uh, like? Yeah, so very much uh, infill development. So uh, amalgamating uh, one, two or three parcels of land, uh, I guess, typically inside the 15K ring um, and where possible within the 10K ring uh, and, you know, carving blocks up and if we can keep the existing house, awesome. If not, uh, knock the house down and and carve out a couple of blocks of land uh, in a city. So what is is called missing middle – uh, and creating different kinds of stock that fit different kinds of demographics. Um, as you said, we've got massively growing population, but we've equally got a massively aging population. And so people don't want to move out of their areas. Um, but, you know, they, if we can keep them in their area, but with a different kind of stock, then that's really, uh, really utopia for what they're looking for. So you're just selling off the land? You're not building anything on it is that my understanding no i do a, I do a combination and this is a really uh from a methodology point of view i i teach something that's really uh going to sound a little backwards but when you actually think through the the uh the logic of it actually makes sense when you go into a particular suburb the the demographics of the area are going to want a very specific outcome and it's about trying to reverse engineer what history has told you on that suburb as to what exit strategy will actually work. So in some suburbs, exiting as land is going to give you the best return on investment because that particular demographic want to build their dream home and they want the vacant parcel of land to do that on. In other areas, if you sold it as land, you wouldn't make any money. So taking that all the way through to construction is the best outcome. So it's really about understanding each particular area and what that particular demographic is after. So sometimes I construct and sometimes I don't, and it's really subject to, I guess, the area I'm in. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. And so with your projects, are you doing a lot of joint venturing now or are you self-funding them all? How are, that, how are you getting the projects done? So I like to refer it as D. All of the above. Uh, From an order of hierarchy point of view, if I've got my own money uh, because it's just been freed up from a deal, then obviously I'm going to try and do a deal using all of my own money and get to keep all of the returns. Uh, But I have a permanent deal finder on staff and they will uh, inevitably find more deals than my cash flow alone can can take. Uh, And so then I I look out to my network and and they've got plenty of people who want to invest in me and my projects. Uh, and it's, I guess, look down the food chain to see, well, who fits the particular profile of that particular project. Um, my ideal outcome is a single investor per project rather than a syndication. Uh, makes it much easier from dealing with multiple personalities when you're, when you're trying to run a project. Um, and 
that then inherently, depending upon, I guess, the net worth of that individual, can constrain what projects they go into. So, you know, but luckily, because I'm doing bite-sized projects, um, getting people to, to fund that uh, as a single project isn't typically that hard. And how would you structure a deal like that? Do you come in as a development manager or a project management manager? Um, can you give us a bit more detail about how you might typically approach that? Yeah, so I've got a very uh, detailed 40-page joint venture document that uh, we've built over time that uh, that allows us some very good flexibility where we can either joint venture with the existing landowner uh, or joint venture with an external monetary partner or both um, with the same document, just the way that the, the document's been written and templated. Uh, and that gives us ultimate flexibility in doing that. So as a, as a JV partner, uh, I'm effectively running the deal as a development manager uh, and just a basic profit split type arrangement at the end of it. Okay, and what give us a num give us a taste about the number of projects that you'd be running in a year, or that you've got running at the moment. So I've uh, just exited out of one at the moment, so I'm down to three projects at the moment. Um, so uh, I've got a uh, one into three that I've just completed. I've got a uh, one into four I'm in the middle of. I've got a two into five that I'm in the middle of. Uh, and a one into two that um, I'm hoping I'll have a, a final contract on the second block on that today. And that means technically I'm out of that one too. So, you know, six and below uh, from that infill land subdivision is very easy to achieve and uh, just cookie cutter stuff. And given your experience, are there particular parts of the developing process that you focus more on these days? Uh I'm going to say the most important part of the process is at the two ends, so top and tail of the project. So getting very, very, very good at your site analysis and identifying all the issues and challenges and problems to be solved, and then getting very, very good at understanding uh, the sales process at the tail end and the demographic of who's actually going to be buying the product to make sure you, uh, I guess, are supplying the right product for the market. If you get those two right, then the middle is follow the bouncy ball. Um, where I see people struggle is that they aren't very good at their site analysis and they they miss a problem. And so because they've missed a problem, that cost never gets captured in their feasibility. Their feasibility looks fantastic, but when they go to run the project, then invariably that problem is still going to occur. Uh, so my biggest guidance would be get very, very good at your site analysis and identifying all the issues and challenges you're going to come up with. And have you got any examples of the sort of stuff that gets missed by people in that initial sweep of the site? Um, I guess there's, at a very high level, um, your zoning is your maximum potential. Uh, and there are a ton of constraints that determine whether or not you're actually going to reach that potential. And most people don't really understand what constraints are going to limit that capability. Uh, and when they're naive in the process, they might see an overlay that has been benign on three or four other projects, uh, but in one particular instance um, triggers a massive uh, impact. Uh, and so it's being able to identify that where that might 
uh, come into play. So, for example, if you've got uh, a small amount of water on, um, you know, traversing the corner of the block, um, it might have no impact at all. Um, if it may not even be on the block itself, I had one of my students come to me the other day with this one where the overlay doesn't even technically touch their block, but the water is on the road out the front, which means that you can't get flood free access on and off to the off the site uh, in case of an emergency. Uh, and so that sort of thing, the overlay doesn't appear on the site, but uh, council is still going to care. So it's really having a look at those sorts of things and, and seeing that. Um, but when you talk to any real estate agent on earth, they're going to try and sell you on the zoning uh, and the maximum potential, and they'll conveniently forget, um, I guess, the constraints that apply. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to go there as well with the real estate agent stuff from, from this episode. Oh, I love real estate agents, and uh, <laughs> I, am, uh, I am a licensed real estate agent myself, uh, and use that when we get deals that we can't fund ourselves and we want to flick and we can we can do that in a deal finding type arrangement but uh so it's a uh you know there are a necessary evil in the process oh look it's it's like anything there's really good agents there's ordinary agents and then there's bad agents but it comes back to you being responsible for ensuring that the site that you're looking at or that you're going to purchase ticks all the boxes and that's your obligation and responsibility as a developer Correct. And then at the tail end, making sure that you're building the right stock, How? what do you, what do, you do to ensure that you're ticking the boxes there? Well, make sure that I'm an area expert in the area. I try not to go into areas I don't know anything about. Um, I have a look at all of the demographics, understand, I guess, the age of the people living there, their, their family uh, status, are they single, are they coupled, are they coupled with young children, are they coupled with old children, uh, understand their uh, income range. Uh, looking at the services that are in the area, I look at supply and demand of, I guess, the stock that I'm anticipating and seeing what competitors are doing things. So it's really having a very good rounding of that particular area and being an area expert that gives you the the insights to know instinctively if the product you're creating is the product that's actually going to be in demand. And with your project team or your suite or team of consultants, are you using the same people over and over again or do you have a handful of people that you like to use? To explain to us your, your, how you've got you to pull your team together. Yeah, there's a core team that I use all the time. So my town planner, civil engineer, um, architect, uh, accountant, lawyer, those sorts of things. Uh, but And server, I should say, they're, they're probably the core team. Anybody else is really subject to the particular project at the time. So what is the particular issue? So if I happen to be doing a project near a main road, then I'll need a traffic engineer. If I happen to be doing a project, uh, I guess, near a, a local park or something like that, I may need a bushfire consultant because uh, of some impacts there. So it's really scaling up on those those uh, extra consultants based on the recommendations of my core team as to who they've worked with and you know the feedback they've got from them. So I don't need to have all of those guys in my team all the time, but but certainly they are. Uh, I do have a core set. Okay, good. 
And tell us, what's the biggest pickle you've ever found yourself in when it comes to your developing? Um, in the early days, uh, I had a project where I identified an issue on the site. I, uh, I went to the consultant that I had at the time, and I'll qualify at the time, um, that I said under due diligence, look, I know there's this particular issue and, and the issue was overland flow on the rear of the site. I know there's a particular issue here. I can see that somebody did a development two doors up the road. They've actually done an overland flow study. Um, so I've got the copy of the results of that. Can you please review the copy of those results and make sure that we're actually going to be uh, not negatively impacted? Uh, and the the consultant came back with a, yeah, she'll be right type approach. Uh, and then when we actually got into the detail of it, they went, oh, actually, we didn't look at that report at all. And um, maybe we should have. And by that point, we were uh, already unconditional. And so you rely on your team. Uh, and when you have an excellent team, you're going to get excellent results, but when you have a less than excellent team, you're going to get less than excellent results. And so uh, that consultant is no longer part of my team. Uh, and the consultant that was able to solve that dilemma uh, is now a, a permanent fixture. Oh, yes. I've had to vote lots of people off the island when it comes to being part of the team, unfortunately. Yeah, and as you scale... Uh, over time, your consultants may uh, ebb and flow because some consultants specialize in certain size and certain type deals. Um, so I do have some, uh, I guess, tag team members of my team that, you know, for a particular project, I'll go down a particular consultant. Um, but yeah, largely, I try to keep the core team intact. And then what, so what was the solution to your overland flow path problem? Uh yeah, without going into uh, the politics that sit behind it, uh, we managed to find that council records were not quite as accurate as uh, as they had indicated, and we were able to argue the case that um, perhaps council was wrong. Um, when you when you can demonstrate that uh, in the bottom of a valley, uh, one side of the hill uh, receives water and the other side of the hill does not. Um, water tends to, to flow fairly evenly on both sides of the hill um, and we were able to demonstrate that to, to council and uh, show them that perhaps their records were not quite as accurate as they could have been. Oh, good, I'm glad you managed to find a way through that. And tell me, what do you reckon you've learned about yourself along the way? Um, I've changed careers three times from electronics repairs where things down to the two cent component level down to uh, IT where I was designing and fixing multi-million dollar data systems uh, to property development. Uh, each and every time it was all about problem solving and uh, you know finding the way through. And so what I have really built up is a resilience to, to seeing a problem and knowing that the problem can actually be solved. And and more importantly, recognizing that as property developers, it's actually our job to solve problems because Joe Average, who is the ultimate buyer of our, of our stock that we create, 
they don't want the hassle of the problems and they're willing to pay a premium if we can solve that problem for them. And so rather than being afraid of a problem, I'm actually now more of a, an opinion where I actually embrace the problem. Yeah, I'm not going to go looking for it. You know, I'm not going to take on a, a problem uh, stupidly, but I'm not afraid of it. I know that that, uh, that almost anything can be solved. It's about how much it's going to cost to solve it uh, and whether or not the commercial risk is worth the reward. Uh, and so by not having that fear, um, I can and have taken on opportunities that other people have run away from and I've made significant money from it uh, because I've seen the solution that others haven't. Yes, I often say that pretty much any problem can be solved in property developing. It just takes time and money and the really sticky ones take both. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Although some are insurmountable. I remember uh, some friends of mine looking at a site that had an issue getting stormwater off the site and it was basically insolvable because you needed to put a drain pipe through two neighbouring properties to get to the discharge point two streets away and it was just... One of those ones where you go, no, can't be solved. Yep. And if you could, if you started all over again, what would you do differently? Um, I probably wouldn't do the twenty years of buy and hold. Uh, I, I think there were certainly some lessons that I needed to learn out of that process, but I probably could have stepped out of that much, much quicker. Um, I think it was. For me in particular, something I needed to learn. Uh, But if I was to lose my money again today, um, I know that with the knowledge I've got in my head, I could recreate my wealth, um, you know, relatively quickly. Uh, And so it would 100% be property development would be the approach. Um, And the investing is then the, I guess, the, the multiplier of that. So... Property development makes the, uh, I guess, the cash cow uh, and property investing makes the cash flow. And it's really those combinations that's really the the killer um, by manufacturing your profit and then keeping that for, for passive cash flow moving forward. All right. Well, let's switch now to some of your teaching side of things. So you've developed or you've come up with a program for people who are interested in learning how to develop. Tell us a bit more about why people get in touch, what, what's the interest that people have in learning how to develop? Uh, it comes back to the two common problems that I said that I found when I was doing courses. And that is that a lot of the courses that are sitting out there are very aspirational. So they get you motivated to want to do something, but, but they lack a lot of low-level detail. And then the mentoring side of things that they sit there tends to be very generic in nature in that, you know, they don't really want to look at your specific site and say, give you, you know, do this uh, because, you know, they might be commercially exposed. And I found that very frustrating. And in in running the community that we've got, uh, I found it, I wasn't the only one having that problem. And so as I started getting success in my projects, the community started coming asking me to say, hey, Rob, can you just show us the how-to? Um, and going back many, many years, I ran uh, a, a very simplistic course which was just on the how-to and it only went for a couple of days. 
Um, and everyone that asked me the how-to did the course, and at the end of that, they went, that's fantastic, now can you hold my hand? Uh, and the questions changed, but the same people were asking stuff. Um, and it ended up being the two, everyone was looking for both. They wanted both how-to and then to, for, for their hand to be held. And so we put together a program that was very much aimed at, well, how do we give them the step-by-step -step on how to actually do that? How do we get them to determine what their development strategy should be? Uh, because everyone has different circumstances as to what strategy is actually going to suit them. How do we get them to determine, I guess, a, a five-year roadmap on the kinds of projects that they need and the size and scale of those projects if they genuinely want to meet that financial freedom goal that they all claim to have? Um, and what are the action steps that they need to put in place to actually make that happen? And that's really the foundation piece of what we're trying to get them to do is is – uh, build a plan that they can then start to execute. So we combine, uh, I guess, coaching, which uh, gets people to actually take the action that they need to follow that plan. Um, and because we find invariably people get in their own way and life gets in the way. And whilst we don't, uh, while we have all the right intentions to ex actually execute, you know, the, the kids are busy and the family gets in the way. And so we, we get into their headspace and, and actually kick their bums when they need to and pat them on the back when they've done it. Um, and then we also combine that with the mentoring side of things to say, well, when you're actually taking the action, uh, we want to make sure it's the right action and that, that it's actually going to get you the traction that you actually need. And it's, it's really trying to combine those two together. And what do you think holds people back from getting started? Because I get a lot of people contacting me that saying they really want to learn how to become a developer or they really want to get into property developing, but I don't see a lot of them actually taking practical steps to making that happen. So in your experience, what's holding people back? Mindset. So uh, the reality is that it's 20% skill, 50% mindset, and 30% effort. And the mindset side of things is them telling themselves stories typically uh, through social conditioning um, with their friends and family and that sort of thing that property development is actually scary uh, and that you can't do it when you've got no money and you know that there are no deals in your area and that your strategy doesn't work and uh, and they're being told these things from people who are not property developers their friends and relatives and uh, and so it's the fear of the unknown and they don't take it on um, and once they get through the mindset obstacle of actually there's solutions to this stuff, I've just got to learn how to, um, that's when they get the breakthroughs. Well, that's good. And you've got quite a big network and I think you've got public groups, don't you? People can join in on Facebook or things like that if they're wanting to lurk around and, and just have a look or they're interested yeah, in just seeing what people are asking. Yeah, we've got, a, I guess, a number of different ways of actually engaging with us. We've got public uh, Facebook communities um, that they can find. So go to Facebook and search for Property Developer Network. Um, we also run monthly networking events in Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne. Um, and, you know, they can come along to those communities and start to meet it, uh, meet people that are actually doing the do. Um, and 
for us, it's very much uh, trying to make it a family and a community. Um, and right from the very start, that five people around the kitchen table experience in helping each other out, we've continued that mindset and that methodology. So the community that we have built around us is very supportive and very, uh, very much pay it forward and help someone else first. Um, because we all know that our that we all had a first project. And we all know that we were fearful when we went into our first project. And so uh, if I can inspire somebody to get into their first deal um, and become successful, then I put the onus on them to then inspire the next person to do the same. And that has resonated through our community very, very well. And given your exposure to these groups and people pretty much down the East Coast, What's your view on the future for property developing in those markets? I know that's a very broad statement in terms of talking about general markets, but do you have an overall view about yeah, the future? Yeah, I, I think there, there are, there's probably uh, layers to that answer. There's the full-time professional developer uh, I guess who I, I guess is a very very commercial scale and and what is going to impact them is going to be very different to the community that is largely in our group which is uh, the small scale mum and dad developer who I guess have intentions to grow into that commercial developer and they're very slightly different um, market drivers in each of them the beauty of the changing demographics that we've got in Australia is that there is a uh, a sweet spot for the mum, um, up and coming mum and dad developers uh, that the commercial guys can't scale down to. So that's a combination of uh, our aging population that uh, are wanting to downsize, and they had the the big backyard of the past, you know, the great Aussie dream. And now they're getting to the point where the big backyard is no longer um, able to be maintained because they're getting a little bit too old to maintain it. And they've been sitting, uh, they've been sitting on this one asset for 20 or 30 odd years that is their one and only time to cash in from a retirement point of view because they didn't have self-managed super funds back in the day. And so these guys are looking for opportunities to, to cash in. Um, and so we can be quite creative in those smaller infill developments and how we actually help those people trying to downsize in being able to get a better return um, and in creating stock that the growing population that we've got actually require. Uh, and so we've got a, a growing population where over the next 25 years, we've got another 10 million people that are anticipated to, to be uh, needing a home in Australia, which works out uh, around 400,000 uh, people per year across Australia, largely in Melbourne, Sydney, uh, Brisbane and Perth is largely where 80% of that population is going to go. And they're all wanting to live in the same places that I guess the older generation are downsizing from. Um, and the people downsizing don't want to leave the area because that's where all their friends and family are. So now we're creating a range of small scale stock that uh, fits those different demographics. So how do you have a property that suits an older uh, older generation and another, another one that's going to suit young upwardly mobiles and, and all of this stuff needs to be created in the same area that it was before. 
and councils want us to do that because they don't want to be building new roads and new parks and new libraries and uh, and the like. So they want the infill development as well. So this missing middle infill development um, and small scale development has massive, massive opportunities that the big guys can't scale down to. And, and that's the beauty about this um, is uh, small bite-sized chunks, but just plenty of them. Yeah, I've always found that the returns on those kind of projects are not that fantastic and they're highly competitive. So you may have a different view on that, I don't know. Uh, Yes, I do have a different view. Um, It really comes down to are you farming in the right areas, Justin? So every strategy works, but it doesn't work everywhere. And so once you've picked your strategy, it's about looking at the particular areas where that actually makes sense. So I can show you areas where a subdivision strategy will never make money. Uh, I can show you other areas where it makes oodles of money. Um, I can show you the same for townhouses. You know, once you've picked your strategy, you get an expert in your strategy, that then should then inform the areas that you're starting to farm. um, And then that informs how you become an area expert in it. Um, And so as a percentage, what sort of return would you be aiming to make as a well i'm going to be really controversial here justin and i'm going to spin it on its dime uh when we're looking at a percentage profit return it's really really important that we are actually comparing apples with apples so when most people are talking about percentage profit on cost they're talking about projects that are taking anywhere between two and three years because they're talking about the townhouse unit type projects And the mythical number that we hear out there is a a 20% profit on cost to a 30% profit on cost, depending upon uh, which guru you're listening to. But when you consider time in that equation, then you say, well, actually a a two-year project that's getting a 20% return is actually only 10% annualized. And so if I start to compare my projects by annualizing the returns, and looking at the the time comparison in it, if I get a 7% return on a project that takes me three months, that's a 28% annualized return. And so I'm very happy with a 7% return for one project and I'm very unhappy with it on another. Um, Whereas most people are just looking for 20% and they're forgetting that time uh, is a a valuable, uh, I guess, leveler in that process. Yeah, I'm glad that you clarified that because these kind of benchmark numbers that people talk about, particularly with percentage returns, and a lot of these figures of 20 to 30% are based on periods in time where inflation was at much higher numbers, interest costs were at much higher numbers, and so your returns were generally at much higher numbers to keep the margin at that at the right level. But now that you've got interest rates very low and you've got um, economic conditions different, I think there should be a adaptation in terms of what kind of percentage return people should be looking at. So what was 20 to 30% in this day and age might actually be 14 to 20% or 15 to 20%. So as you say, it depends. And, and a lot of developers are pushing down to those percentage returns and being happy with the with 15% return on a two-year project. Um, I personally wouldn't be happy on 
that kind of return, but I, I guess each to their own. And that's one of the reasons why the strategy that I've chosen uh, allows me a little bit more flexibility because I'm getting quite reasonable returns that when I annualize them, given that the timelines don't take as long, uh, outpace the other projects, meaning my money is working harder and I don't need as much money to do it. Yeah, it's a good point. Thanks for clarifying that. And tell me, what would your top tip be for develop out, developers out there that are looking to take their business to the next level? Uh, to the next level or, or one starting out? Because I could probably give you tips for both. Oh, give us tips for both then. Okay, so for starting out, uh, I would say lock in your development strategy first. Too many people uh, have bright, shiny object-itis and they see their friends doing, you know, one friend's doing a subdivision, the next friend's doing a townhouse, the next one's doing uh, a rooming a common, and they they flip and change between all the different strategies and they're not really sure what to do. Uh, they start to learn a little bit of it, but they start to become jack of all trades and master of none. Whereas if they lock in one strategy, then the same amount of effort allows them to go much deeper in the knowledge of that one strategy. And so then they actually start to get traction. Um, so that's probably tip number one. And uh, so just to, to jump in there, and how do they determine what that strategy should be? Well, it's going to be personal to every one person. So it's going to be what is your starting position from the amount of uh, cash that you've got. It's going to be uh, what is your risk profile from, I guess, you know, how, how much money you're prepared to, to borrow and the kind of project that you're trying to do. It's how long can you sustain a negative cash flow situation before you get a payday because we only get paid when a project um, is actually sold. Uh, so if you, if you can't wait two years for payday, then chances are a townhouse strategy is not going to work for you. Um, you know, you start to look at those sorts of things and uh, I've built a little matrix that I've put together to say, well, given the amount of cash, given my risk profile, given how long it takes, you know, there's only two or three strategies that might actually fit my current circumstance. Um, and when you look at that, you go, well, now it just comes down to personal preference. You know, some people love certain kinds of problems and certain kind of projects. Some people love being a renovator because they like picking up the paintbrush. I hate it, right? Um, and if I had the choice between that and the next strategy, then I would I would clearly choose that because it's not my personal style, but somebody else will love that. Um, so it doesn't make it wrong. Personal preference should come into it as well. But yeah, it's plugging all those little variables in and going, well, given my circumstances, only two or three strategies that will actually fit. All right, very good. And someone looking to take their biz developing business to the next level? Uh I'm going to say understanding your, uh, and I have to be very careful that I'm neither an accountant nor a solicitor, so I can't give uh, accounting or soliciting advice, but understanding entities and what you're doing with entities uh, and having cascading entities will allow you a combination of asset protection, tax minimization, uh, and tax deferral that allows you to... Um, uh, defer when the tax is paid and use that timeline when your tax is paid to reload into another project uh, and use 100% of the profit 
um, in the next deal before the tax is actually due, um, allowing you to escalate your projects faster. Okay, very good. So understanding your entities is the, the two-second answer. All right, very good. And what do you reckon the best piece of advice is that you've ever been given? Ooh, I wasn't prepared for that one. Um, know that you'll never know it all. So after 32 years in property, I still learn every single day. I still go in with an open mind and I will still learn something from an absolute novice because they're looking at the problem in a completely different way from me and they'll ask a question that I've taken for granted for years and years and years and now it gives me a different perspective on it. So being open to recognizing that you don't know everything. Um, and being and, and have a thirst for knowledge. That's probably the the next one. Um, if you can learn enough to ask a better question, then you'll get a better answer. And with that better answer, you can make a better decision, which will then give you more knowledge to then go ask a better question again the next time. All right, very good. Well, let's switch gears a little bit now and find out a little bit more about Rob Flux, the person. Okay. If you could sit down for lunch or dinner with any three people alive or dead, who would uh, who would they be and why? Okay, so I'm going to say Napoleon Hill. Uh, Napoleon Hill wrote a book called Think and Grow Rich, um, which is about a 120-year-old book. Um, and for anyone who's not read it, um, despite the age of it and the language of it and noting that it's written in a particular time period, the lessons that come from it are just insane. Um, he followed a gentleman by the name of Andrew Carnegie around the world and Andrew Carnegie was the richest man in the world at the time uh, and I guess was a billionaire in, I guess, uh, iron and steel. Uh, followed him around for 25 years and, and, and found that the way that the rich do business and the way that us commoners do business is very, very different. Um, so I'd like to be part of that inner circle in how he learnt that. Um, yeah. That's good. I read a uh, biography on Andrew Carnegie last year. It was really interesting. Yes. Uh, so the, I guess the punchline to that, which actually forms the foundation of that five mates that sit around my group, was really from reading that particular book uh, and doing a masterminding process um, that we still continue in our meetups today. Uh, it's very much an integral part of our meetup process. And that is that if you look at a problem from your own limited worldly experience, then you can only solve that based on what you know. But when you expose that to other people with different worldly experience, they're going to give you a completely different answer. And the then the answer they give you then spins off other ideas in you or other people in that little circle. And so the, the final answer that you get is an answer that none of you would have come up with individually. Um, and that's the beauty of the masterminding process. Um, and yeah, for anyone who's not experienced it, um, I highly recommend coming to one of our events and, and sitting down and, and uh, throw one of your problems into the ring. Okay, next person. Elon Musk, um, serial entrepreneur that uh, backs himself and uh, I, I, coming from an IT techie nerdy 
um, background myself. Um, you know, he was uh, an original IT techie nerdy himself. He was the one of the founders of, well, he was the founder of PayPal. Um, but he's taken that entrepreneurial way of doing things and very much not let his limited resources stop him from being resourceful. Um, and there is lots to learn in how that man has, has tackled problems and looked at things differently. Yes, I read his biography not that long ago as well, and it was, I thought it was interesting that he his dad was very tough on him and his brother when they were younger, but that stress actually has made him really resilient, which has enabled him to then push the boundaries in all sorts of areas because he's uh, quite tolerant to risk. Yeah. Uh, and you asked for three people, so the third person uh, would be 100-year-old me. And so, why? Uh, because I'd like to learn the lessons that I'm about to learn and be able to enact them now. And uh, if I could go back right now and tell my 18-year-old me some things, I'd be in a very different place. And so... Uh, I'm 51 now. I've got another 49 years before I get to 100-year-old me. I'm sure there's a few tricks that they can they can teach me. And what would you have said to your 18-year-old self? Uh, Don't get married. No, no. That, <laughs> uh, I've got a beautiful 18-year-old daughter who has come from that, uh, and I guess had a, a very uh, a number of very good years out of that. I guess we all look at the, the ending and think that we should never have gone into the beginning, uh, but that's not the case. Um, hold no grudges for that uh, experience. Um, but no, I think, uh, and it's taught me to be a better person. I'm probably a better husband now than and what I should have been the first time around. Um, so, you know, I kind of, I don't wish that happened, but I'm kind of glad it did. So what, um, what would you have said to yourself then? Take better care of your hair? Uh, well, I had a mullet back in the day. So um, <laughs> God has punished me for, for burning up all of my hair in one go. Uh, um, yeah, for the so, list, listeners out there, uh, Rob and I are both a bit short on uh, hair on top. Yes. So, uh, yes, God has said, thou shalt have X amount of hair and if you burn it in one go... That's the end. So, uh, uh, but I do find that getting out of bed now is just really brush the head and I'm and I'm done. So that's uh, very convenient. I keep rudely interrupting without you being able to give us the advice you'd tell your eighteen-year-old self. Uh, apologies. Uh, advice I'd, I'd give them would be to trust yourself, uh, to have faith that your um, your ability to be resourceful will be rewarded um, and that there is always an answer and it's just really trying to, to be persistent enough to get the answer. Well, good. I hope your younger self takes heed of that advice. Now, if people want to find out more about you or about your, your network, where, where can they go, Rob? Uh, I have a website called developernetwork.com.au uh, and there's a number of links that uh, come off of that, but probably the most relevant one would be forward slash events. Um, that will tell you uh, how to get access to our meetups. Uh, it'll tell you how to get to our Facebook communities. 
uh, and it'll also tell you other one-off events that we run from time to time um, as we go around the country. Yeah, and the meetups are a good way. I've been to to some of them. They're a good way to learn, uh, meet other people, and actually start finding out what's involved with developing for people that might want to dip their toe in the water. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just to round that out, we have industry experts every single month that talk about their, I guess, the current issues and challenges that are impacting that particular industry. So we've had town planners, civil engineers, accountants, property lawyers, uh, finance people, uh, bushfire consultants, disability consultants, uh, I guess a wide gamut of people uh, in the industry come and actually present for us. Um, and then we have somebody within the community who shares a real deal. So uh, this is a warts and all uh, story about how they found the deal, how they initially assessed the deal and the issues and challenges they thought they'd have, uh, how much money they thought they'd make, what issues and challenge actually eventuated and how they solved them, and then what money they actually made. And they're not always the same. And so the point of it being that by being real, we can learn from our mistakes uh, and we can also learn from our successes and that hopefully the next person doesn't have to make the, I guess, the failures. Um, and it's not all about, hey, look how fantastic my project went, but it's more about revealing those problems I was talking about before, showing that they are solvable uh, and uh, having people believe in the fact that they can take on challenges themselves and, and solve it th for themselves as well. Yeah, I think that's the really important part in learning how to develop is knowing how to solve the problem, who to turn to, how you find the answer. You don't need to come up with the solution, but you need to know where to go looking to find it. Correct. Ask a better question. All right, Rob. Well, thanks very much for sitting down with me and going through all your property developing uh, history and experience. It's been really great talking to you and I wish you all the best for your future projects. Perfect. Thank you, Justin. And thank you, listeners. Ciao, folks. Okay, there you go. I trust you enjoyed that chat with Rob Flux. I think we covered some good ground and there was plenty of gold for you to consider. Here's three things that I took away from our conversation. One, to succeed as a developer, you need a growth mindset. One thing is for certain on any development project, there will always be problems to solve. Some big, some small. The people who succeed in life are ready to tackle the problems and not let them become a barrier. They see things as on the way, not in the way. I like to try and embrace the challenges and see them as opportunities to learn and grow. The size of the problems you're prepared to tackle will be an indication of what you can achieve in life. So, are you ready to tackle little problems or big problems? 2. Reconsider how you view profit sharing. It is very common to see the bottom line in a feasibility and want to keep it all. But as the saying goes, 50% of something is better than 100% of nothing. By not being prepared to share the profit and the risk, you may not get to do a project at all. Or you may be limited by the number of projects you can tackle. So maybe a reasonable profit sharing structure might help you and other people get further ahead in life. 3. What sort of return do you really want? I really enjoyed Rob's insight about being prepared to accept a lower return in exchange for less risk and shorter timeframes. Maybe doing two projects that net 7% in one year with little risk is better than doing one project that gets 20% return in two and a half years with a lot more risk. 
Maybe a combination of short, low-risk, low-return projects mixed in with higher-return, higher-risk projects might be a way of smoothing out the returns while balancing the risk. It all depends on your risk appetite. Alright, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rob Flux. If you did, then you might want to go back and take a listen to my discussion with developer Davina Wong in episode 59. Davina has used some creative ways to get deals across the line, including getting streets rezoned. She's had to deal with plenty of challenges along the way and shared how she approaches them. In the beginning, we got knocked back. Uh, but you, And I remember at that point in time, uh, I tried to understand why council rejected it. I, uh, sometimes it's good to always understand that no is not usually the final answer. So we went back to council and try and understand why they rejected us so coldly. There's plenty of great insights in that chat with Davina, so be sure to head back to episode 59 and take a listen. Okay, don't forget, if you are interested in learning how to develop property, then email me about the Property Developing Mentoring Program that is available to help you get started. There's nothing like a guiding hand to show you the best way when you are starting out. So email justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com and I'll send you some further information. You can also catch me on Insta and Facebook for all my latest project pics and videos, industry news, and other fun tidbits. You can also post a comment on iTunes if you're enjoying the show. And of course, all the past episodes of the show can be found at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com. So until next time, let all your problems be opportunities to learn and grow. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.